Never stop learning. NSL Double Talk featuring Danny Meyer and Ian Bremmer. Their topic today is food, politics, and everything in between. Danny opened his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe, in 1985 at the age of 27. Danny focused heavily on customer satisfaction, laying the groundwork for his 2006 New York Times bestseller, Setting the Table, which looks at the power of hospitality in restaurants, business, and life. He continued to open award-winning restaurants, Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Jazz Standard, Shake Shack, The Modern, North End Grill, Porch Light, and most recently, Taco China and Manhattan. Under Danny's leadership, his restaurants have earned a total of 28 James Beard Awards, and he has been named by Bon Appetit as the best restaurateur in America. Ian is president and founder of Eurasia Group and is an independent voice on critical issues around the globe. He is also the host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer. Ian frequently guest stars on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and BBC. Ian is president and founder of Eurasia Group and is an independent voice on critical issues around the globe. He is also the host of G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer. A prolific writer, Ian is the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, which examines the rise of populism across the world. He also serves as the foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large for Time Magazine. He currently teaches at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and previously was professor at NYU. We are so excited to welcome Danny and Ian to NSL Double Talk. Danny, good to be with you. Hey, Ian. First of all, because, you know, you're just iconic in your field, and I think that's because you don't do gimmicks. You mean I don't do puppets? No, no. Puppets are not gimmicks. Okay, well, People you do love puppets, puppets better than anybody, I think, since Sesame Street. Well, I anyway, I, I'll tell you where I want to start, because I, I think it's important. People like, to, people like to know how people met in the first place. I remember meeting you in Seattle, but that wasn't the first time, was it? No, it wasn't. We were seated at the same table at the Time 100 dinner. Oh, that's right. Yes, and that's right. when I heard that you were at my table and I'd read some of your stuff, I said, that's the guy I want to meet. I don't care about all these, you know, famous celebrities. But then I learned how famous you were after that. But then we did run into each other at a conference in Seattle. And I think that it struck me that you're a guy who not only knows everything about something I'm so passionate about, which is international politics. It was my major. But in college, yeah. also like food. And so we've just never had a shortage of things to talk about, that's, ever. It's true. Okay, tell me something that you've read of mine that's actually had an impact in the way you think? I think, I think the way that you realistically and fairly look at geopolitics is just absolutely remarkable. And you, you seem to know how to do it in every corner of the globe. So let's say we're having a flare-up in the Middle East. You somehow know the exact right people to be in the room while people are debating the very topics that we're trying to figure out. And in, in addition to covering it, you have an opportunity to actually shape it. Now, and Danny, if you had asked me at Gramercy Tavern, what is the thing you most enjoy about the food there? Give me a dish that you really like. And I had given you an answer like that, you'd be like, I don't think you actually eat off my menu because you didn't mention a single dish. And I would say, you know what I feel about Gramercy, right? What's the thing that I like the most? You know what it is, right? I think you like the chopped chicken liver. It's the soup. Damn. The soup. You are so underappreciated for soup. 
It's a I, thing that I, I think, think the soup and sandwich at Gramercy Tavern is the single best deal in all of New York City. No one wants to order soup off a menu. I order soup no matter what it is every order, time I you, go to your restaurant. If, if you trust a restaurant, you should order soup. Everybody says the bread and the roast chicken are the way to tell whether a chef's any good. True enough, soup is, is a much, much better barometer. Yeah. You know, I always thought the Zagat survey was rigged, too. Yeah. Tell me I'm, about I'm that. On that. No, I'm come on, on that. come on. Because those numbers, I mean, you know, you get like, what, you, what, what, what do you guys generally get? Like 27s, Well, they stopped doing it for a few years because Zagat had sold it to Google. And then I think Google just sold it to another company called The Infatuation. But it's just been revived. There was, you know, way, way before we knew anything called big data, I would wait. We didn't have the Internet. So I would wait every single November Right around Thanksgiving time, the Zagat survey would drop at Barnes & Noble or yeah. whatever bookstore I would use back then. Yeah. And I would just thumb through every single page of that book. And what Zagat was measuring was really three things, food, decor, and service, service for every yeah. single restaurant. Yeah. And then they also had this list called New York's Favorite Restaurants. Yeah. And I would go to that, and I would actually make these longhand charts, and I would not only look at Union Square Cafe, which was my only restaurant back then, mm -hmm. did we tick up or down in, in the three categories they asked, food, decor, and service. But then I would also look at at least 100 of our competitive set. And I would do a calculation based on quality per dollar spent because the GAT would also say, this is how much money it costs, and then track whether restaurants were getting more or less popular. And that, Which was data that they did not provide you, but you could do that yourself. No, you, it, yeah. it was right there if you yeah. just chose to do it. And what I would notice each year was that Union Square Cafe was doing reasonably well when it came to food, decor, and service, but we would always do way, way better when New Yorkers were asked, what's your favorite restaurant? And there was a year right after Gramercy Tavern opened, the very year where Union Square Cafe was number two as New York's favorite restaurant. And that What was year, number one that year? It was either La Bernadette or the Four Seasons or yeah. Lutece or, you know, one, yeah. Boulay. But here was the cool thing. Number two is New York's second favorite restaurant. Our food that year was 18th best in the city. Mm -hmm. Our service was something like 12th best, and our decor was 65th best. Mm -hmm. But people loved it. But that's when I just kind of popped this notion that there's some things that Gat didn't ask about. And that was hospitality. Your experience in the restaurant. The way they make you feel mm -hmm. is a completely different thing than how good you think the food is or where they were in a tuxedo while they served you your soup. So Gramercy Tavern then that very first year hits number 10. So now we have number 2 and 10. And then what happened, Ian, was year after year, Union Square Cafe was number 1 for three consecutive years. Gramercy Tavern was 2. Then the two flip-flopped back and forth. And that's when we open a couple more restaurants after that, and they, the same thing would happen. So you go into Gramercy, and no matter what season of the year, no matter what the weather's like outside, you go to that front room, that wonderful bar tavern space. It's the tavern space, and you have this fantastic mural with these bright, bright, vibrant, intense, oversaturated colors of pumpkin and eggplant and onions and this massive wooden bar. You are observant, I appreciate that. Gorgeous forced flowering quince spraying out across the room. I mean, just, it's, everything about it feels like this is a place you wanna be. And there's nothing particularly exciting or nouveau, no gimmicks in, in the menu, 
you get yourself a meatball, you get yourself some soup, you get yourself the tavern burger, but no one leaves that restaurant with anything less than this was a great New York experience for me to have with my friends, my family. Thank you. And I think what you're touching on earlier, you talked about no gimmicks. Right. I think that there's plenty of restaurants that do a fantastic job of titillating your mind where the plate gets put down and you go, oh my God, how did they think of that? In a million years, I never would have thought of that. In general, I like to pick chefs who are actually more interested in cooking food you know better than you knew it could be and then putting it in a a social environment that makes you feel great. Look, think, think about... We don't really need restaurants the way we used to. There's 26,000 plus in New York City. But meanwhile, the whole world has become, you know, somebody said recently that, you know, your smartphone has turned an entire generation, starting with millennials, into the world's biggest assisted living camp because we just push buttons and expect everything to come to us, whether it's a four-ton car or whether it's a pizza or, or a bowl of pasta from a restaurant. And you could literally spend the rest of your life sitting at home and watching all the movies you want to watch, listening to all the music you want to listen to, eating all the food you want to eat, and never, ever have a real human experience. So with that in mind, I think that restaurants play a very, very important role if they understand why they exist today. They don't exist because you're hungry or because you're thirsty. They exist because... Human beings are being tricked into thinking that they're connecting when they're really not. It's also the one time you put down your phone. At least you should be, right? It's the one time you should be actually completely disconnected. You're engaging with the food. It's a deeply, overwhelmingly sensory experience. You're engaging with the crowd, with the waiter, the waitress. You're engaging with the person, the people that brung you. Let's give me something you hate. Well, I don't, I don't like what I call, there's a lot of, of inauthentic restaurants speak that it's just ridiculous. And I don't know who ever started this, but I'm doing everything I can to try to eradicate it first in my own restaurants, which is really what I care about the most. But I don't like when people say, are you still working on that? Or, or, or even worse, are we still working oh, on Oh God, our, no, we are. Are we still working on our steak? Don't create that, yeah. I can't stand that. I worked my butt off to be able to afford to eat at your restaurant. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Or Here's one. Look, when I got into the restaurant business, I didn't even know what an allergy was. And today, obviously, there's a huge profusion of allergies. And it's real. It's real. It just didn't exist. And I'm talking about Union Square Cafe will be 35 years old um, at the end of this year. So in that time frame, we know all about allergies. Okay, so we should ask people if there's anything that they're allergic to mm-hmm. or, or is there anything we should omit. Yes. But how about the triple negative that every restaurant now asks you? Do we have any allergies, restrictions, or aversions? Or aversions, yeah. You know what okay. I say? I say, I, 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 say like, I always say not yet. I'll tell you if I develop just, some over the course of the I, meal. I mean, I don't really think you need to know that I don't like hazelnuts. If it's, a, if it's a chef's surprise tasting menu, which happens in about, you know, 0.1% of restaurants, maybe. I think that's a fair question. But you could do the entire thing with one question. Is there any ingredient we should omit from your dish? Speaking of negatives, how about when you were growing up and I said thank you, what did your mom teach you to say? You're welcome. Yeah, well, why is it that in my industry, 
when you say thank you, the answer is no problem. Mm -hmm. like, like it would have been a problem to do what you asked me to do. I shouldn't be in the business. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff. The other things are, I think it's ridiculous that in our industry you have to wait for your check, especially with our restaurants where there's no tipping. There's zero reason whatsoever that we cannot come up with a technology, just like you have in a ride-sharing car, right, where you just get up and go when you're done. I've tried that. <laughs> you tried that, and we collared you on the street because you were trying it for nefarious reasons. But I just figured you know me well enough. They should like have an account someplace. You know what's we the problem? We can do that for you. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, th those are some of the things. Here, here's one more. How about coat checks? Coat check tickets are like socks. It's like where did the other one go? Who eats my socks? Who eats my coat check ticket? Why is it that every time I go to a restaurant? I have to lose my coat check ticket. Then I got to go buy my coat back, fumbling around for a couple bucks. And invariably, there's a $10 or $20 bill. And then I feel like a cheapskate for saying, oh, can I please have $17 back? So I think coat checking needs to be really, really revolutionized. We don't accept tips with coat checking anymore. You've already paid for your coat. But at the same time, we could go a step further. We know when you paid your bill, why can't that prompt the coat check, just give them an Apple Watch or something, prompt the coat checker to have your coat waiting for you when you get down there? Anything we can save time on for people, I think, is a good thing. I'm less bothered by the coat check thing, but I get you. I mean, certainly everything you're talking about is so experiential in these restaurants. I mean, I, in terms of food, so you remember when Alfred Portal started his vertical cuisine thing. I mean, th that's kind of the opposite. I don't like going to the restaurant and finding that there's something on my plate which is meant to impress other than the food that I'm actually eating. I love going to River Cafe occasionally. You know, you're there and it's this wonderful tableau and yet they do this sort of stuff too, right? And their, their waiters have been trained within an inch of their lives to make the process overly formal mm -hmm. and make you feel a bit like a rube from out of town. Those things bother me. Do you remember going to a restaurant called Manhattan once? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was it was high up. It that, was a good that view. That was high up, but the, the goal of That's a Danny Meyer restaurant. Well the goal by the of way. opening Manhattan yeah. on a high floor yeah. was to challenge the notion that just because you're on a high floor you can't present a down to earth experience. And what I'm really, really proud of is that the clientele who goes to the restaurant, who goes to the bar, would be going to that restaurant if it were on the ground floor. It's a local, young, fun group. It's, and it's not the cliche high altitude restaurant with a view. There's a great term that my friend Seth Godin used once to describe is your, did you just drop that name? Yeah, I, Seth. He's well, who, your friend. Who would he wouldn't drop? Yeah. No, I'm just wondering. That's all. I, I, I would. I could see you guys palling around. Sure. I absolutely. Learned, I learn almost as much from Seth as I do from you. Maybe more, Ian. But, okay. Um, let me uh, let me <laughs> just share one. Let me share one of my learnings. He used an Italian word to describe what you called non-gimmicky, hmm? and I like his word a lot. It's sprezzatura, and it's an Italian word that was coined in the 1500s to describe a certain style of art that was more complicated than it appeared. It appeared to be simpler than it was. And he and I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, look, think about when Pete Sampras or Roger Federer, pick your favorite elegant tennis player, would just 
lithely glide for a drop shot with seemingly no effort, and they just made excellence look effortless. And he said, now compare that to the way I play tennis, which is, you know, I'm running up and I go, you know, making a big deal out of it. And he said, when you guys first opened the modern, which was back, it was 16 years ago at this point, you got to understand that was a time when people wanted fancier restaurants. And we did something really stupid that in retrospect, I'm so glad we stopped doing. Which was? If you went to the modern back in 2005 with a party of four, for every one of your courses, we would come to your table with two very, very stiff guys holding, and they wouldn't have been women back then, sadly, yeah. Yeah. holding two silver trays on top of each of which would be two silver cloches on top of two plates. That's a lot. Yeah. So now you'd have two people, four cloches. You'd have a third person distribute the cloches as if they were a croupier in Las Vegas, one, mm. two, three, four. And then in unison, they would go, poof. The reveal. They would reveal, and then you'd look at this, you know, like quarter of a squab leg, and you'd go, okay, that's nice. I would have rather just had a great bowl of pasta, you know, my Mm. favorite trattoria. And what what Seth said, that's the opposite of sprezzatura, whereas what you guys do at a place like Union Square Cafe or the tavern at Gramercy Tavern is it's better than the effort makes it seem. And he's, he believes that that is what people really, really enjoy the most. Now, yeah, you, I mean, you, I had, you I could had have made that real simpler by saying, just no gimmicks. No gimmicks. I, look, I, I have been to the Modern a bunch, but usually just meeting folks for drinks. And now it is much more in line with the other restaurants that you have in terms well, of Well, I mean, it's got service. two Michelin stars. The dining room is a refined experience. Yeah. My hope is I want all of our places to blur the line between going out and coming home. So, for example, if you go out to a restaurant, it is because you want to go out. You don't want to shop and cook and do the dishes, and you do want a social environment. But some of our restaurants are naturally closer to the 50-yard line of going out and coming home. Union Square Cafe, I think, nails that perfectly. I think a restaurant like The Modern, you know you're going out. Mm -hmm. And so in a restaurant like that, we've got to really dial up the emotional sense that you came home. And we have to do that by having a relaxed welcome and a relaxed set of hospitality. So I'd like to have you go there. I'll go with you sometime. Okay, yeah, we we'll definitely it's do It's really, that. really beautiful. Let's talk a little about other places, places that aren't yours that you really love to go to. I will tell you that I had a meal recently um, that from a curated experience, almost a museum-type experience, did blow me away. Not something I could do more than once a year. Atomics. Mm. Have you been there yet? Mm-hmm. Went there once. It was great. It, it's, it's extraordinary. It's what, like going to a good piece of theater, but the hospitality there is so good. It was wonderful, yeah. That it takes away the pretense sense that, oh, this food is so fancy. I had a dish there, Ian, that not only did I love it, but I, I took a picture of it, and I can't You didn't. It. Really? I can't get the image out of my mind. Yeah. I haven't, I've never posted the picture. That's but, good. But it was so simple and so good. This was last summer. Let me see. And it was a little bowl. Yeah. And in half the bowl were just the sweetest, brightest green peas, English peas, in exactly half the bowl. The other half was caviar. Mm -hmm. And you just wanted to dig in your spoon and eat. And it was the green and the black. It was just 
I loved the confidence to do something like that and then pair it with a perfect wine by the glass. But you know why we love that place? I'm projecting me onto you right now because I think we do have similar taste is that they're doing all that with a twinkle in their eye. They're not, they're not holier than thou. They're not saying you just came to the church of Adamix. Yeah. It's like they know you came here to discover, to have fun, and they're going to deliver that fun. You know, when you go to a really fancy restaurant, if there's a twinkle in the eye of the people serving you, because they're in on the joke, yeah, they know that this isn't how you eat every day. But but they, it's their job to make it feel really special. I think Le Bernardin does an exceptional job of that. Mm -hmm. They really do. They've changed my view of what fish is about, right? And it's funny because that, that menu has not changed. And he has no other restaurants in the U.S., right? Correct. That's it. He's got a place in Cayman, and I think that's it, repair. But he's actually in that kitchen. How important is that? Well, I think he's made a choice, and I, I think in his choice, you, you raise an interesting point, which is that chefs have become chef restaurateurs. And in the old days, there were restaurateurs and there were chefs. So I got my start as a restaurateur. I was never a chef. Yep. I think that while chefs have become, in many cases, household names and quite famous and developers and casinos and hotels all want to have a famous name chef there, you're not getting the chef. And so I think in a certain respect, he's made a great choice because his brand as a chef is peerless. It's unassailable. And, you know, he's often in his restaurant and he hasn't diminished the quality anywhere. But meanwhile, he has still been able to grow through media. He does a lot of TV. Yep. He's got the hair for it. I mean, there's no question, he's got, right? He's I mean, got the Jesus. whole package. He's yeah. also a great guy. He also does a lot of work philanthropically. He's very involved with City Harvest, which I really admire. Now, I think we restaurateurs have a slight advantage if you're going to scale restaurants because I can take one business philosophy, in our case we call it enlightened hospitality, and I can sort of sprinkle that over many restaurants, but each one of those restaurants can have its own culinary point of view. Whereas if you were a chef restaurateur, the best of them, I think, are people like Jean-Georges Bonjourichton and Danielle Ballou. And, you know, there's a bunch of them around the country. At a certain point, there's only so many different ways they can cook. Mm. And so I'd rather sprinkle one philosophy over many restaurants that each have a culinary point of view than to take one culinary point of view and try to slice it into 15 different culinary points of view. How can you tell when a chef restaurateur has completely lost their way? They've gotten too big. They have, what, what, what's the indication? Because I'm sure you get early signals of this before you others do. You do, you do. And you, you just can sense that, that they don't care. So they're not awake at the wheel. That the people working there are not going to work for the primary purpose of making you feel better than you felt when you first came there. And you can tell that. I've been in this business long enough and I've had enough restaurants to know that even great restaurants can go into slumps because the leadership went into a slump, the general manager went into a slump, the chef went into a slump. My job is to be aware of those slumps as if it was a, you know, a sports team or something and to basically three things, spread some sunshine, kick them in the butt and remind them who loves them. If I can do those three things, on an ongoing basis, we tend to get out of the slump pretty quickly. What was a restaurant you had that was really in a slump that needed to be kicked hard? 
We've had a few through the years. 11 Madison Park early on was really, really in a slump. Amazing space. Completely different restaurant when it opened. Completely different restaurant. Yeah, because when I looked at the place in construction, I said to myself, this could be the best brasserie ever. Mm-hmm. And this was before Balthazar opened in New York City. And I said, whoever wrote the rule that just because it's a brasserie and you're having fun, you can't also have great food. So lo and behold, we opened the restaurant and I had completely underestimated how beautiful the space would turn out. It's this imposing, gorgeous, elegant marble, that, that's right. soaring ceilings. So right? I, I completely missed the boat because rather than people going there and saying, this is, this is the best food I've ever had in a brasserie, they said, this is the most mediocre food I've ever had in a grand restaurant. Because <laughs> I didn't intend to open to a grand off. restaurant. Yeah, and it took yeah. a long time for me to go, you know what? They're right. And I got to really, really, I got to make a big change here. And that's when I And recruited, you made a huge change. Yeah. I recruited Daniel Hume from San Francisco. And the restaurant was elevated first from two to three stars, and then from three to four stars, and then three Michelin stars. And then we sold it. And after we sold it, I said to the guys, what are you guys going to do from here? I, I, all you can do is lose your stars. Nope. We're going to get number one in the world. And by golly, they did it. Okay, let's talk about something controversial. Reviewers, New York Times, Pete Wells, what do we think about him? He has such a different style than previous New York Times reviewers. Well, I think they've all had different styles. To this day, I feel incredibly lucky that Union Square Cafe was born right after the reign of Mimi Sheraton. She was really, really tough. Mimi's still around, and she and I became very, very friendly because we were never in an adversarial position. Yeah. Brian Miller, who came after Mimi, was a really, really good writer. Um, he was fun. He, he, he drew metaphors and analogies that just always made you smile, and he really covered the food. Then we got Ruth Reichel, and Ruth Reichel had a love affair with restaurants. She just completely... She would bring you into a restaurant and, and really, really, really... And she was also a great New Yorker. Great. And she knew what that meant. She knew what it meant. She knew the restaurant's place in New York, but she also loved food. She loved restaurants. It was a sensual experience. Then we got William Grimes for a short amount of time. And it was clear to me, Biff Grimes had been a, a theater critic before this, didn't really love restaurants. He was fair. He was totally fair, but it was the joy wasn't there. And I loved, I actually loved his metric for giving out stars was one of the best I've ever heard. Yeah. He said, it all has to do with my conversation with the person I'm with. And he said, if the person I'm with and I keep talking right through our eating, the best that a restaurant's going to get is one star. If we pause to smile because of the food, I'll probably give it two stars. If one of us says, God damn it, that's good. I'm going to probably give it three stars. And if the person at the other table starts moaning with joy, I'm going to probably give it four. I found that. I saw that movie, but... Um, yeah. yeah, well, I thought that was pretty interesting. So then after, after Grimes, we got Sam Sifton for a little while, um, who was terrific, but he didn't want to be a restaurant critic. And then Pete Wells. And maybe I'm missing someone in between, but I think I've got... Pete has really. Brought- you are missing. You're missing. What's his face? Who stout, writes? He writes. The oh, Frank Bruni. Frank Bruni. How could of I course. forget? How could Frank you forget Bruni. Frank Bruni? He yeah, was- Frank Bruni probably gave us more reviews than any other critic. Some of which were pretty tough, by the way. Yeah. Um, Frank Bruni, I think, gave Eleven Madison Park three consecutive two star two star reviews, 
you know, bringing the chef to tears, and he finally was the one that upped it to four. But here's a story about Frank. Frank. destroyed Per Se, too. You remember that. I mean, that was really something. Uh, I think that was Pete who destroyed Per Se. Was it? Yeah. But oh, let me just tell you yeah. a quick, this is a, good, this is a good story. Yeah, yeah. It was a, no wonder I blocked it out. So it, the year is 2009, and the Mets have just built their new ballpark, City Field. And we're serving food there, and, uh-huh. and I went to a game one night, um, and it was the Saint, my St. Louis Cardinals playing the Mets, and Cardinals had a lead. I'm having a great time. And all of a sudden, during this particular two-week period, we knew that Frank Bruni was coming back to 11 Madison Park. We knew that the only reason he was coming back, he wasn't going to take it from three stars to two stars. So if he was there... It was probably for the purpose of seeing whether or not the He's restaurant. Four. Yeah. And, you know, the restaurant was all over every single one of his meals. They knew him because he'd come in so many times. And meanwhile, I get a call from the New York Times the week before this baseball game, and they go, We're ready to shoot your restaurant. So I go, Great, I'll get the guys at 11 Madison Park already. And they go, Nope, nope, we're not going to 11 Madison. He's reviewing Union Square Cafe. I go, What? What? He had been, he knew that he had been seen mm-hmm. all those times at 11 Madison Park. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, snuck into Union Square Cafe while we were asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Nobody saw him once, not once. And so the week before 11 Madison Park got its four-star review, mm-hmm. Union Square Cafe would get reviewed. And Union Square Cafe at this point had had three stars since 1988. So he's doing two reviews of two restaurants at roughly the same time? Uh, back-to-back weeks. That's exactly. really weird. It, it's really weird, and it was... <laughs> let's put it this way. I'm at the baseball game. Cardinals Your Cardinals have, are winning. Cardinals have a lead. I'm, I'm on my BlackBerry, because this was before iPhones. And the review comes in, and it says three stars at the top. And I start reading it. I start scrolling through my BlackBerry, and it's not... The Best three-star review I've ever read. The restaurant has lost its way. It's missing something. That doesn't sound like three stars, like at all, ever. So now within about 10 minutes, yeah. the New York Times issues a correction. It's not three stars. It's two stars. So yeah. it's the first time in my entire career that you've lost that a star. ever lost a star. Yeah. At that moment... The Mets stage a big rally. I knew they you were going to say that. lead from the Cardinals. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And I go to myself, I go, I go I've, I'm like white as a ghost, and I go to myself, you got to go to Union Square Cafe and be with the team right now because it's going to be like going to a funeral. And I am in such a bizarre, surreal state that the next thing I know, Ian, is that I've driven myself to the departure ramp at LaGuardia Airport by mistake without even knowing it or thinking about it. I just wanted to die at that moment. Wow. So how'd you do? How'd you do with your team? It was terrible. I mean, I was my job was to be there and to listen. But you know what? I was also mad at us because it's inexcusable. I don't care whether you're a restaurant critic or, or just someone from the public. The New York Times restaurant reviewer, no matter who they are, is going to dine a minimum of three times when they're reviewing a restaurant. Yeah. It's inexcusable not to recognize anybody who's dined there three times within a, you know, a fixed amount of time, as he had. What I like about that story, despite how devastated I, I, you clearly were, and I mean, I, I can only imagine, I mean, you get a bad review of a book, you get whatever it is. I mean, this is so close to everything that you are. 
and to have the New York Times take you down a peg, I would, I'd be incensed and destroyed. But you're such a leader. After 9-11, after the 2016 elections, the way that everything about you is, I'm going to make sure that my people know that I am there for them, that we are in this together, that we're going through this, and that I have a responsibility to them and the organization to instill and live those values, to write the long letter, to talk to all those people. You do that consistently. And you know, no matter how good your hospitality is, if you didn't personally embody those things, I don't think I'd like you so much. I think that's reality. Can I throw a kiss over a podcast? Yeah, sure, why not? Thank you. Yeah, look how cute and furry he is. Yeah. <laughs> See, you thought we were going to talk political science. I'm like, no, I want to talk food with Danny Meyer. I always have to talk about the world politics stuff. But, I mean, I, I love food. You, you are a bona fide foodie. It was great to talk to you, Danny. Damn good talking to you too, Ian. Next time, can we maybe spend some time on politics? Next time we can do politics. That's fun. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.